How should we approach Daniel chapter 11? We recall from last week that chapter 10 served as a kind of introduction to the, this lengthy section. Daniel had received a vision from the Lord, a vision he only summarizes as a great conflict, but he doesn't describe what he saw. Then an intimidating angelic being appears to Daniel in what seems to be a follow-up visionary experience. This angelic being described mysterious realities in heaven regarding the conflict between angelic beings as well as angelic rulers influencing the activities of kings and people on earth. The great conflict Daniel saw involved warfare on the earth, it seems, but he doesn't tell us the way that was presented to him. Instead, he simply sets the stage for this explanation that we get that goes all the way through chapter 11 and into chapter 12. And as we read through chapter 11, just reading the text itself, all we can really see on the surface is some kind of conflict between the north and the south, whoever they are and whatever they represent. It's frustrating to read this chapter, isn't it? Don't you feel that way when you come to it in your Bible reading? I know I do. Who's who? What's going on? How is this unfolding? It doesn't really make sense on the surface. None of the kings in this long chapter is named. And if we didn't know any better, we'd think that there's just one king of the north constantly fighting against one king of the south throughout the passage. What could Daniel have made out of this? I'm sure the answer is nothing if we're expecting him to understand the flow of the history that would fulfill this very detailed prophecy. When just reading the chapter, it's the detail that's frustrating. Considering it from Daniel's perspective, and even from the perspective of the Jews of the next couple of generations, how would those who lived through the fulfillment of these events be expected to anticipate the events as they would unfold? Maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe that's not what biblical prophecy is for, ever. Maybe it's not primarily about giving readers data that would enable them to predict the events ahead of time or to recognize them as they're unfolding. Maybe the benefit comes to readers after the fulfillment has happened. In any case, that's where we are. The fulfillment of the events announced way ahead of time in this chapter has already happened from our vantage point. We are able to read chapter 11 and identify all the different kings of the north and kings of the south and many of the other people mentioned in these verses. Once we do that, we can gain some excitement about this chapter. A few years ago, I created a document in which I took the verses from chapter 11 from the ESV and I replaced the vague, non-specific references to particular historical individuals with the names of the particular kings and queens and priests and other figures. And at least at the end of our passage today, verse 35, there is solid agreement on all those details among students of Scripture. 
That exercise helped me to see the wonderful precision of this particular prophecy. One writer counted 135 distinct prophecies between verse 2 and 35, which we can identify with certainty the historical fulfillment. That is remarkable. But still, what we have here is the narration of various conflicts between two groups of people. What's the point? Why is it here? When we know the fulfillment, we could approach the prophecy from a few different angles. First, we could consider the chronology reflected. As I said, up to verse 35, there is near unanimous agreement on the specific events described in this chapter. Interpreters divide at verse 36 for several reasons that we will look at in a couple of weeks. But when we focus on the narration of these events up through verse 35, the chronology is quite clear. If you'll put up that next slide, Brooke, the, this chart that you can just glance at, hard to see probably from, especially back there in the back of the room. But if you can see there, there are several events and spans of time that are laid out here. But there are certain places, which I've noted in red there, where there are gaps, gaps of several different years. They're not the same length of time. And as we'll see in the text, a couple of the gaps are hinted at, but most of them are not clearly marked at all. Then when we get the big picture of the history in front of us, we can see how the narrative has a clear emphasis, a series of events that occurs over the most number of verses there at the end of this section. From verse 2 through verse 20, we cover a span of about 350 years total. But from verse 21 through verse 35, we cover a span of only about 12 years. 16 verses to talk about 350 years, and then 15 verses to talk about 12 years. Everything slows down to draw our attention to the events described in verses 21 to 35. Or, a second approach could be to focus on the major kings discussed. David Jeremiah has observed that they all happen to start with the letter A in English, a happy coincidence indeed, when you ignore verses 5 through 9. If you can move over to that next slide, Dr. Jeremiah provides this chart to summarize the A kings in Daniel 11. Those familiar with his book, Agents of Babylon, might recognize that I've left off the last line of the chart. He identifies the king who appears in verses 36 to 45 as Antichrist. In a couple of weeks, I will suggest a different figure and a different time period is in view in those verses, one whose name doesn't happen to start with the letter A. Or a third approach could be to see how the kings of the south and the kings of the north overlap in their reigns. And we can then identify the wars that they fought, most of which are reflected in these verses. If you'll move to that next slide, another chart for you there. Um, the south, uh, all the kings of the south are in the left column there and up through verse 35. And they all have the name Ptolemy, starting with the letter P. The south is primarily the nation of Egypt in these verses, while the north is the region of Syria. Thus, the wars are sometimes referred to as the Syrian wars, six of which are mentioned in our passage. The kings of the south either have the name Seleucus 
or Antiochus, and they're all relatives of each other. Not only were the kings of the north fighting against the kings of the south throughout this period, but they were often fighting within their own nation, within their own families. It is a horrific period of time in this region of the world, however you look at it. Or a fourth approach could be to analyze the strategies employed by these kings in their continual warfare and then show how those sinful strategies are still reflected today, both in warfare and also in business and out in the world around us in everyday relationships. One writer has identified 30 such items from the passage. Things like corruption, idolatry, marital alliances, taxation without representation, seduction, political maneuvering, intimidation, bribery, and just plain old deception. But the fulfillment is not the scripture. Do you know what I mean? God inspired these words in chapter 11 without naming the people who would be involved without indicating the specific time frames, without drawing attention to when there would be gaps of years, decades, or even centuries between events reflected in back-to-back verses. Think of this. A Jewish man reading Daniel 11.5 in the year 312 B.C. might observe in history, in his world, the separation between Ptolemy I of Egypt and Seleucus I of Syria, if somehow he recognized that event as fulfilling verse 5, he would have no way of knowing that the events described in verse 6 would not come to pass until 62 years later. And he would have no way of knowing that the two kings of verse 6 would end up being two different kings from verse 5. It's just as mysterious to them as it is to us all along the way. With the emphasis being laid on verses 21 to 35, it might be possible for an astute Jew living in 175 B.C. or thereabouts who has access to the history records of Egypt or Syria to look at Daniel 11 and recognize the sweep of events described up to that point and maybe gains some insight that what is described in verses 21 to 35 would unfold in his lifetime. But even that seems like a stretch to me. So all of these considerations lead me to believe that the message of the vision, the point, as it was given to Daniel, as it was preserved as sacred scripture for God's people who would have lived through these things, and beyond, even up to our own day, must not be solely in the details of the historical fulfillment. Although seeing the historical fulfillment confirms the validity of the prophetic word, that does not tell us the message of the prophetic word. So what is the message? I summarized it last week. Recall that the visionary experience fully covers chapters 10 to 12. So the primary message takes in all of that. Here it is again, if you'll move there. God rules over the details of the future, even as that future consists of wars and rumors of wars, great tribulation for God's people, and the increase of wickedness, all leading, however to the grand climax of God's judgment and the salvation of the remnant 
in the resurrection of the dead. Our passage today, the bulk of chapter 11, highlights the middle aspects of that message. God's ruling over the wars and rumors of wars that bring great tribulation for God's people and the increase of wickedness. The title of this sermon is Caught in the Crossfire. I'm borrowing that title from a pastor of a church in California near Biola University. In his reflections on this passage, he suggests considering everything from the vantage point of the Jews. And he means like literally, historically, geographically even. The terms north and south beg the question, north of what? South of what or where? And of course, the answer is north of the land of Israel and south of the land of Israel. When you see the north warring against the south, guess who's in the middle, caught in the crossfire? The Jews, God's people. Thus, this message comes across to us Christians as well, to the church today, as we will often find ourselves caught in the crossfire whether that be the ongoing culture wars in our own nation or actual military warfare and violence, like the church in Israel and Palestine, for example, right now. Pastor Ed Morsey puts, puts it like this. He writes that God was here revealing to mankind that God's people would always be caught in the crossfire and often in the crosshairs. How consistent with that doggedly repeated message of suffering in both Old and New Testaments. And that has characterized the history of God's people to the present day. How relevant to my congregation. Indeed. One final observation before we dive into these verses. The vision of warfare needs to be held in the context of Daniel's other visions. Here's a diagram that illustrates a big-picture look at the book of Daniel and the relationship between the visions of the book of Daniel and their historical fulfillments. Now, in this diagram, I'm beginning to tip my hand about where I think all of this is headed, and we'll see that unfold in a couple of weeks. But if you remember, chapters 2 and 7 the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and then Daniel's first vision in chapter 7, established the overall historical sequence of four kingdoms followed by God's kingdom. In chapter 2, God's kingdom was represented by a stone that smashed the statue and then grew into a great mountain. In chapter 7, God's kingdom was handed over to the one like a son of man and his saints. In chapter 8, Daniel saw a vision about a ram and a goat, which essentially zoomed in on the second and third kingdoms in that series, the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece, with a large focus on the hostile persecution of the Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In chapter 9, in response to Daniel's prayer of confession on behalf of the Jewish people, the angel Gabriel revealed a time period of 490 years that would be required before the problem of sin could be finally dealt with so that God's people could truly and finally be restored in relationship with him. 
And we saw how at least one way to understand that prophecy's fulfillment, this period of time culminated with the actions of Jesus, the Messiah, in the days of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, and also predicted the destruction of the temple as God's judgment against rebellious Israel. Now, in chapters 10 to 12, we're going to zoom in again on the kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece with another emphasis on the same figure from before, the hostile persecution of the Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We'll look at that today. In two weeks, I will try to show how this vision culminates with events in the fourth kingdom, in the Roman Empire, highlighting the destruction of the temple especially. Then the following week, we'll consider how that connects with the work of the Son of Man and the future resurrection of the dead. So that's where we're headed, big picture. For today, we'll focus on chapter 11, verses 2 to 35. We'll walk through this in sections, and we'll very briefly sketch out the historical fulfillment. Might be helpful if you've got a pencil, pencil into your Bible even, the places where the gaps are, if you're interested in doing that. First of all, in verses 2 to 4, we see a summary of the transition from the second to the third kingdom, from the Persian to the Greek empire. Daniel 11, 2 to 4. And now I will show you the truth. This is the angel speaking to Daniel. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. We recall from verse 1 of chapter 10, Daniel is having this encounter in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's 536 B.C. if you're calendaring along. The angel reveals that there will be four Persian kings after Cyrus dies. We can't conclude from that statement alone that there would only be four kings. And we know from history that there were at least ten Persian kings after Cyrus. As clear as the fulfillment of this prophetic passage is, we need to recognize again that the details are presented vaguely. Nevertheless, the fourth Persian king would be Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus from the book of Esther. He was indeed known for his massive wealth and also his obsession with conquering Greece. All verse 2 announces is that this fourth king would provoke his empire into ongoing conflict with Greece. Verse 3 then speaks of Alexander the Great. That means that between the events announced in verse 2 and the events announced in verse 3, there is an unspecified gap of 135 years. At least six Persian kings are ignored and skipped over completely. Notice, however, that the mighty king in verse 3 is not identified as a king of Greece. And his accomplishments are not specified in any way though we can be certain that Alexander is intended. Rather, the focus moves quickly in verse 4 to his downfall, 
As we saw from reflecting on Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8, the eventual breaking up of Alexander's Greek empire into four sections is the important thing for Daniel and the Jews. It was broken into four segments, but this chapter is only going to focus on two of them, Egypt to the south of Israel and Syria to the north of Israel. Verses 5 to 20, then, sketch out some of the conflicts between Egypt and Syria, the line of the Ptolemies and the line of the Seleucids. Look just at verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Historically, Ptolemy I demonstrated his supremacy over the other successors of Alexander's Greek kingdom quickly and clearly, By 323 B.C., he, from his base in Egypt, had mastered quite a large territory, which included the land of Israel. Initially, he had partnered with Seleucus I of Syria in various ways, so that even Seleucus was in some way subordinate to Ptolemy. But in 312 B.C., Seleucus I parted ways with Ptolemy I, and he established his own authority over Babylonia, Syria, and Medea. And he wrenched Israel away from Ptolemy I. This begins the northern kingdom's dominance in this area. And it would stay that way for about 30 years. In verse 6, the first phrase, after some years, will end up reflecting a period of 62 years. Look at verse 6. I think we might be having technical difficulties, so if you've got a Bible, now would be the time to pull it out. Pressing on, Daniel 11.6. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Again, 62 years pass, and the they who make an alliance are not Ptolemy I and Seleucus I, but instead are Ptolemy's son and Seleucus's grandson, Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Ptolemy II of Egypt offered his daughter, Bernice, in marriage to Antiochus II, but Antiochus II would die two years later, and the alliance was not carried on. Historically, we skip two more years, in no way announced by the prophecy, As we enter verse 7, look at verses 7 to 9. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. The branch from her roots refers to Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, and he leads his forces to invade and conquer Syria. Now, think about a map here for just a moment. I don't have one up there, but just imagine we're talking about king of the south and the king of the north from Israel's perspective. So if Egypt in the south is invading Syria in the north, guess where they've got to march through? Israel, they've got to travel through with their armies 
And this would be where Israel changes hands yet again as Egypt conquers Syria. An uneasy peace remained for just about three years before Seleucus II, the king of the north, launched what would be a failed invasion against Egypt to attempt to retake his territory. Then, historically, we skip another 25 years. Again, completely unannounced by the prophecy. Look at verses 10 to 12. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. The year is 217 B.C. Ptolemy IV of Egypt wins a great victory over Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. However, he won't be known as the Great King of the North for another several years. He develops that reputation through the events prophesied in verses 13 to 19. Consider just verses 13 to 17 first. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Are you dizzy yet? Just trying to keep up with all of this is very exhausting. Bear with us. We've skipped another 13 years in history at this point, and this is the last historical gap through our passage this morning. Thus, as David, Jeremiah, and others have noted, Antiochus the Great, in, in his horrific son, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, are really the focus of this prophecy. In verse 13, we do get a time marker, sort of. The ESV has after some years, but the Hebrew has a different phrase than we saw earlier in verse 6. The phrase is literally, at the end of the times. That sounds very definitive and final. We will come back to the importance of the word, the end, In this chapter, but here the phrase, the end of the times, may point to a decisive turn of events. Perhaps this is referring to the final supremacy we see for the kings of the north, as Syrian dominance will continue through the rest of the Greek Empire. Also, it's important to notice that in verse 14, we get our first explicit mention of the Jewish people. Verses 13 to 17 are describing a six-year period of time, the years 204 to 198 B.C., the bulk of which featured the so-called Fifth Syrian War, where Antiochus III made a name for himself. Look again at verse 14 specifically. Egypt and the king of the south, which would be Ptolemy V, is facing revolution and rebellion among his subjects, including from the Jews. 
The angel is, is addressing Daniel and he says, the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. There's not enough historical detail to know for sure what motivated the Jews to rebel against their Greek Egyptian overlords at this time. But the prophecy indicates that they would be attempting to fulfill a prophetic vision to bring the fulfillment to pass. That's very intriguing. Do you think people force prophecies to be fulfilled? Isn't that, isn't the business of fulfilling prophecy God's business? Nevertheless, we'd like to know what prophetic vision they'd be thinking of. Perhaps generally we could say they were hoping to throw off the oppressive rule of the Greeks in order to pave the way for the rest of the restoration prophecies to be fulfilled. They are living in the land. Their temple is rebuilt and fully functional. Sacrifices are being offered in Jerusalem again, but they're still ruled by pagans. Maybe an uprising is the means by which God would bring judgment against their enemies. It seems like this line of thinking was common in the first century when messianic fervor was at its peak, probably in part because of the book of Daniel. The zealots and many other Jews were anticipating a warrior messiah to lead them in overthrowing the Romans. The people of Israel have always been known as a rebellious people, and surely there was something out of place when they were being ruled by foreigners. However, what they seemed to have missed was that the key to their independence, the key to their salvation and freedom, was not armed rebellion. Rather, it was true repentance and salvation and forgiveness given by God as a gift. And that would only come in the fullness of time, at the culmination of the 70 weeks period during the Roman Empire, not the Greek Empire. And so it is that the prophecy of Daniel 11 indicates that the Jews attempt to fulfill the vision, whatever vision it was, by rebelling against the Greek Egyptians would fail. But these verses are focusing on the work of Antiochus the Great. He takes back control of the region, including Israel, and then he would offer his daughter, Cleopatra, to the king of the south, Ptolemy V, to attempt to establish a marital alliance. But Cleopatra, and this is Cleopatra I, not the famous Cleopatra VII, who would ensnare Roman kings a century later, this Cleopatra supported her new husband against her father, Antiochus the Great. It's marvelous how the prophecy detailed even that bizarre event. Then we read in verses 18 and 19, Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Over the next decade, Antiochus the Great attempted to expand his territory but he is thwarted by a commander. Right here, we are introduced to a figure from the little place called Rome. This is surely a Roman general by the name of Scipio. He's actually got like five names, but we typically call him Scipio. I think that's his third name. Um, in the 190s BC, Rome's power and influence was growing. There were beginning to see, be seen as a threat to the still dominant Greek empire. 
Alliances between Greece and Rome were often developed, and they often seemed to be out of desperation from the Greeks. The fourth kingdom of Daniel's vision begins to rear its ugly, monstrous head. Antiochus the Great did not have a great end. He raided a temple of Zeus on one of the Greek islands, perhaps attending to fund another military campaign, and the locals stirred up a mob, quickly overpowered him, and murdered him. Verse 20 then closes out this section with a look back to the north, summarizing events that would happen over a 12-year period. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Antiochus the Great's successor was one of his sons, Seleucus IV, and he inherited massive debt from his father. His father's warmongering, if you will. The New American Standard Bible sees a reference to Jerusalem in this verse, where the ESV sees the taxation as a method to enhance the glory of the Greek kingdom. The New American Standard Bible says, Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel, capital J, of his kingdom. Historically, Seleucus IV, the new king of the north, sent a man named Heliodorus as a tax collector throughout the Syrian kingdom to raise and collect new taxes to attempt to pay some of the king's debts. It does appear that Heliodorus heavily taxed Judah and Jerusalem and may have even expected funds and treasures to come from the temple in Jerusalem. But that is historically unclear. Nevertheless, history does tell us that this tax collector eventually, and for unknown reasons, turned against his king and assassinated him himself. Thus, Seleucus IV shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Finally, we come to the main section of this message, verses 21 to 35, where we will revisit the horrible monster that was depicted as the little horn of Daniel chapter 8, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Let's read the whole passage. Verses 21 to 35. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, 
And he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The contemptible person, despicable person, vile person, as you might see in your Bible, is another son of Antiochus the Great. The ESV notes in verse 21 that royal majesty has not been given to him, and he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is parallel to what we saw in Daniel chapter 8, verse 24. Gabriel had said there, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. His father did not name him as successor to the throne. Instead, he usurped the throne with the assistance of one King Eumenes II of Pergamum, whose favor he had gained by flattery and bribery. In verse 22, we get another cryptic phrase that probably draws our attention to Israel specifically. The prince of the covenant or covenant leader is said to be overcome by Antiochus IV. This is the only time in the Bible where the word translated as prince or leader or ruler is connected directly with the word covenant. Here it probably refers to the high priest at the time who was known as Onius III, Antiochus IV Epiphanes replaced Onius III, the rightful high priest, not a good high priest, but a rightful high priest, if you take my meaning, with another man who pledged his loyalty to Antiochus IV. Just as quickly as we zoomed in on Israel for just a moment, the angel pulls back our attention again to the larger conflict at hand. Antiochus IV Epiphanes continued warfare against the south, against Egypt, And as terrible, treacherous, and violent as this Antiochus was, he would prove unsuccessful in his military campaigns to dominate the region. While he still held control of the land of Israel, he could not further expand to the south. Antiochus IV Epiphanes was a clever man, and he attempted far more than his predecessors to utilize treaties and deception and manipulation to enhance his power. Not being able to conquer Egypt, he instead partnered with a young Ptolemy VII to overthrow his older brother, Ptolemy VI, as king of Egypt. But as soon as he was on the throne, the alliance ended as it became quite clear that neither of them wanted any further association. But also neither was able to gain the upper hand over the other in the ongoing conflict. Antiochus IV Epiphanes, after ending both his partnership with and his campaign against Egypt, at least temporarily, marched back from Egypt to his home in the north, to Syria. As verse 28 says, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. 
He targeted the Jewish people and took out some of his frustration on them, slaughtering many, taking treasures from the temple, and otherwise being just the worst. But his ambitions had not gotten smaller. He would launch another campaign to invade and conquer Egypt, but this final time he would meet some unexpected opposition. That he was, in verse 30, where the prophecy announces the arrival of ships of Kittim. This is yet another reference, cryptic and unclear as it is to us, to the armies of the fourth kingdom, Rome. Their navy, ever growing in power, the Roman government was increasingly annoyed with the squabbles between Syria and Egypt, and their armies were beginning to expand Roman influence in the world. This intervention by the Romans embarrasses and enrages Antiochus IV and Epiphanes. And as he was returning home, again, having to travel through the land of Israel, he vented his frustration against the Jews in Jerusalem. We reviewed his abominable acts when we looked at the vision of chapter 8, and I won't go over the horrific details again. In this vision, however, the angel specifies that Antiochus IV Epiphanes would establish an alliance with some Jews, Jews who were willing to abandon their covenant relationship with God, with Yahweh, the God of Israel. Notice that the angel does not suggest that Antiochus will make them or convince them to forsake the covenant. Rather, they were already abandoning the covenant. And he enlists them in support of his violence against their own kinsmen. As we saw in chapter 8, the Jews had already crossed a line of rebellion against God so that God was using Antiochus IV Epiphanes as his agent of judgment against the rebellious Jews. Here, we're given more information from another angle on that same rebellion. Verse 31 details how this Greek king would desecrate the temple, stopping the Jewish sacrifices, and instead offering sacrifices to Greek gods, setting up what the angel calls the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes desolate. The really horrible thing that makes the temple empty and non-functional. But verse 32 speaks of another group of Jews, the people who know their God. And these shall stand firm and take action. This is probably a prophetic announcement of the Maccabean family who would stand against Antiochus IV and eventually defeat his armies, reclaim the city, and rededicate the temple in the year 164 B.C. Among them will be those described in verse 33 as the wise among the people who shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. The Jewish war against Antiochus IV Epiphanes, often called the Maccabean Revolt, would rage in Jerusalem for about three and a half years before initial victory would be won. Many Jews would be slaughtered in the meantime. And the fighting would actually continue for another 20 years, well after Antiochus IV Epiphanes had died until the year 142 B.C., which would begin a period of about a century when Judah was an independent nation until the Romans came and conquered everything and everyone in the region. Verse 35 is important for the message of the vision, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The angel makes it clear that there is a purpose for the wise in all of this suffering. 
In our introduction to the book of Daniel, we talked about how this book is not collected together with the other prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible. Instead, it is among what is known as the writings, which are largely a collection of wisdom literature. The theme of wisdom has been prevalent throughout, and here it appears yet again near the end of the book. The wise are those who fear Yahweh, those who do not abandon the covenant, but who remain faithful to the covenant, even in the face of suffering. In this period of suffering, while it's already been identified in Daniel 8 as a period of God's judgment against Jewish rebellion, it is, at the same time, God's purifying His faithful people. The same events that include suffering for believers and unbelievers alike has dual purposes in the hand of God. He judges those in rebellion and He purifies and refines and whitens His faithful remnant through the same kinds of suffering. This raises a very important final question with which we'll close our time. Where is God? In all of this. In this vision laid out by this angel, we haven't really seen God acting or involved. Or have we? In previous visions in the book of Daniel, I've sought to bring your attention to the use of the passive voice. These are places where we should infer the action of God. So, for example, here in Daniel 11.4, we read, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. This was Alexander the Great. And just as Daniel saw in chapter 8, the great horn of the goat was broken. So here the angel announces that Alexander's kingdom shall be broken and plucked up. God is the one who gets credit for the sudden and surprising downfall of Alexander the Great. God is the one who gets credit for the settling of his kingdom into the four segments that continued for around 200 years. Then in the midst of the ongoing warfare between north and south in Daniel 11.11, we read a phrase that appears often in the Bible, it shall be given into his hand. As we've learned throughout the book, it is God who gives authority to kings. It is God who raises them up, puts them down, shifts them around, expands or reduces their territory, and uses them and their armies as his tools in the world. But it is in the final section when things are their darkest for God's people, where God's people are mentioned most often, that we should see the most direct and explicit evidence of God's involvement. First, like the references above in verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. This passive voice reference again implies that God is the one who grants military success to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And it is God who uses Antiochus IV Epiphanes as his agent of judgment against the prince of the covenant, the wicked high priest of the Jews at that time. But more important in this final section, more important than the occurrences of the passive voice are the time references. Look at the end of verse 24. Antiochus IV shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Only for a time. Who does the angel intend Daniel and us to understand as the one who would limit the time frame of the success of this pagan king? 
Or consider verse 27. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Who appoints such times? Who determines the end from the beginning? Then in verse 29 we read, At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. Will Antiochus IV be aware that his decision to try to conquer Egypt again will have been appointed by someone who rules over him? Will he recognize that he is acting and choosing freely, but also according to a predetermined plan? God revealed far ahead of time some of his predetermined plan in these visions to Daniel. In this chapter, we get detailed information about the free choices of the Greek kings that they would try to deceive and kill each other. Where is God when violence thrives on the earth? Where is God when his people are viciously opposed and persecuted? Where is God when evil people do evil things? Where is God when deception dominates and falsehood frustrates his people? I will tell you where he is. God is sitting on his throne in heaven. And he is on earth with his people. God stepped into the crossfire of this world, into the warfare, into the hostility and the violence. He became a victim of violence, of injustice, of hostility and wickedness. He became a man, took on flesh that could be cut, could be pierced, could be destroyed. And he carried the guilt of sin all the way to death and back again. For Daniel and for us, God doesn't always do anything to change our circumstances. Instead, He gives us Scripture to change our thinking. Words breathed out by the Holy Spirit, translated into our own language, printed on these pages or put up on these screens. All to change our thinking, to alter our perspective, to adjust our expectations. That's why passages like these are important. The bigger picture, even going back to last week, is to help us live by faith and not by sight. And he invites his faithful people to trust him, to believe his promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he is with us in the fire, that he will, that we will endure tribulation in this world. But Jesus has done all to overcome the world. Following Jesus does not eliminate human suffering. But it does give glorious purpose to every bit of it. Here in Daniel 11, God reveals the purpose of the suffering for God's faithful remnant among the Jews who would live during the days of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In verse 35, the angel announces that some of the wise shall stumble. A word that means to stagger, sometimes due to exhaustion, sometimes due to some obstacle a person is tripped over. This angel indicates that God's purpose in allowing the wise to stagger in the midst of suffering is so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. 
God establishes definite, decisive limits on the suffering of his people. And he always has this purpose in our suffering. Peter makes this clear in the first chapter of his first letter. After assuring us that God is always at work, exercising his power to protect us, to ensure that we experience the final outworking of our salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In verses 6 and 7, he then speaks of the way that the Christians in his audience are responding to their suffering. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that is tested, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you're grieved by various trials, you will often find yourself staggering, stumbling, exhausted by the pressure of life. Peter's Christian audience was able to rejoice in the midst of their suffering because they understood and believed God's purpose for their suffering. Enduring suffering with faith purifies that faith, removes its impurities. For our faith to continue and to achieve its God-designed outcome, God must bring us through the refining fires of suffering during this life. The enduring faith that is refined through suffering is not a generic faith. It's not merely believing that there is a God and that He has a wonderful plan for your life. No, The kind of faith Peter speaks of is specifically faith in Jesus. Believing the good news of what God has done in Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Trusting that Jesus died for my sins and has cleansed me forever from the stain of my sin. In Revelation 7-9, John sees a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. John is told who he's looking at in verse 14. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Normally, if you dip a robe in blood... It gets stained red, right? But counterintuitively, dipping your robe in the blood of Jesus communicates the power of Jesus' death to purify guilty sinners. Guilty, dirty, unclean sinners. Whether or not you believe the great tribulation spoken of here has already begun, I think you have to believe that this applies to every person who believes in Jesus. A numberless multitude from all nations cannot apply only to those who will believe in Jesus during the last three and a half years in history. If you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, as the old hymn puts it, if you've accepted Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf by faith, I believe John saw you in that vision. If you haven't accepted that Jesus died to pay for your sins, why don't you join that numberless multitude today? Would you pray with me? 
Father, thank you for hard passages that push us to think. Thank you that winding our way through your word, even in the difficult spots, brings great benefit. You have assured us that all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for us. And so we pray that you would help us to gain the profit, gain the benefit of looking into the passages like these that push us and challenge us and confuse us. And we pray that you would grant clarity. But we pray most of all that your word would pierce our hearts, penetrate the hard places, bring the transformation that's needed. You use your word to do miraculous things. And so we pray that you would do that very thing as we keep looking into your word from now until you send your son to return. We put our hope there. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. minute break just to give everybody some time to maybe get up stretch go to the bathroom uh get resituated uh your kids are uh downstairs uh if you uh, are not staying for sunday school but immediately following these announcements after those five minutes we are going to jump right into abf which will be happening right here that's adult bible fellowship and kids from uh all the way up through sixth grade will be invited to uh part to uh enjoy the sunday school program that will be started um and again uh, I believe we're going to be doing that downstairs this week, so um, just your kids should already be down there, but you'll figure that out. Uh, this uh, this month and throughout the summer, we're going to be trying this whole new thing of figuring out how to make all the timing work, and uh, be patient with us as we try our best, and hopefully uh, it won't take too long before we iron out some of the kinks. A couple of different announcements then, real quickly. Uh, make sure you notice that on June 16th, which is uh, Wednesday night, Coming up at 7 p.m. is our annual business meeting. This is where we go over the new budget for the year and also vote on that. And there'll be some other other informational items that'll be shared uh, and some things that we'll be talking about as a as a membership body. Whether if you're a member, we'd love you to be here. If you're not a member, we'd love you to be here. If you just want to listen in, either way, that's June 16th at 7 o'clock. Um, and next week we will be honoring uh, two of our seniors who are graduating. Uh, and so make sure you're here, and that'll be taking place right after the singing uh, next week. And so that'll be f- we'll be honoring Will Ashbaugh and Mike Roberts. So make sure you're here for that next week. All right, that's all I have. We'll give you about five minutes or so, and. Uh...